we wanted to, well i personally most of the people who follow me and tom kind of already know about the WEC method um and i wanted to try to hear more about you like the stories we talk about around the fire at joshua tree that stuff fascinates me and i think people would wonderful. really dig it you know getting to know you wonderful wonderful yeah i'd love to i i what I'm looking forward to is I'm looking forward to my own personal journey, sharing more and more with greater clarity. And for the, the devotees, the people who, you know, really are seeking information, if there's, you know, fun historical stories that help put stuff into context and, you know, makes the process more enjoyable, then that's, you know, that, that's really what ultimately nobody should need to know nothing but what to do. But, you know, the, the stories underneath it are, can be instructive and informative to getting it to that stage. Because ultimately yeah. what I'm looking for is that a human being comes into this world and they're, 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 they're given better information so that they can make more of themselves. And I think physical education is the number one most important first base is the physical education and what I see happening right now with the road is, oh my goodness, I think we have that critical mass where enough people know the secret that it's just a matter of reps and it will attenuate your own perfection and it will factor in all, all aspects because the rope attenuates a certain path and when you can find that true path and revisit it inform it well you are just a reflection of the rope but you are the three-dimensional creature that's controlling it and it the, the the results reside with those who do the reps and gain that muscle memory and we could take someone who would call themselves clunky and unathletic and make them graceful and pain-free and i believe it's the most important foundation that there is and from there, you know, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the rope in itself, like those, those patterns and drills are almost stories, right? That people can get into. And then the experience is what matters. And I was wondering, experience. taking us back to New York, um, David, mm -hmm. young David, good looking mm -hmm. David, rollerblading through the streets, pre-BOSU ball, what does life look like then? Okay, yeah, so I would say that um, I was a snob in the sense that I was going to be a winner. I went to Williams College, graduated with honors. You know, I was going to go win at whatever I did. And when it turned out that I didn't want to go to Wall Street and just continue that path, because I had worked on Wall Street the summer before graduation. And then it was like, okay, well, if there's no football coming next, well, then it's go get a job come next or, you know, go be a Rhodes Scholar or go to law school or some, you know, aspirational pathway where you're going to do great things in this world. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was hell bent on I'm going to do something great. And when I realized that, oh, if I, if I did go to Wall Street, I don't have the natural passion and affinity for that. So I would have been square peg in a round hole right from the start there. 
and chasing after the dollar without like the passion for that particular pursuit. And so it rang very hollow for me. And I had a crisis of, of self at that point. Like, oh my God, like, who am I? What am I going to do? And acting became the self psychology. So I did a right angle turn my senior year at Williams College, where I was majoring in political economy. And I took theater 101. And I did a one man play that was an hour and 15 minute monologue. And you know, it, I just, I just, I dove into it like I do anything that I'm going to do. And I moved to New York City after Williams College as I am an actor. I waited tables for two shifts and I said, okay, but well, I can't do this. I, I grew up not eating in restaurants. We were very frugal. So, you know, I didn't even know. I asked some guy like how he wanted his salmon cooked because, you know, the waiter asked him, I want his steak cooked. Like, I don't know. And, and I'm not good at menial service that I don't care about, right? I need to be passionately engaged. So anyway, my natural employment to make money was personal training. Like I was an athlete all my life. I did all this training, so I was a personal trainer. And like most trainers, I was a bad trainer at first in terms of having no experience, but good intentions and learn along the way. And what I did, um, I'll tell you a funny story, and you just direct this if it goes off or at all, but so, how do you get clients in personal training, right? That's the hardest part is how do you get clients? So I was in New York City and I started taking ads out in, in, the, in the paper. Like I found the New York Observer, which, you know, per capita, the highest income subscription base. You know, a lot of them live in a Park Avenue, Fifth Avenue, et cetera. I'll advertise in there. And I would get all these the only phone calls I ever got were like, oh, do you do massage? you come to a hotel, I'll, I'll pay you twice your rate. I'm like, no. <laughs> and I, did, I went to one call from, from the ad that seemed like it was legit. And the guy opened up his door in his tidy whities That awkward moment of like, okay, um, yeah, you'll go get dressed and we'll do this session. And we'll both pretend everything's cool and we'll never see each other again. <laughs> like that was what it was. And so I took a job at Club La Raquette for $6 an hour. $6 an hour, I was a personal trainer charged with wiping the sweat off the machines and folding towels when I was not training people where I'd make $13 an hour. And your opportunity was, here's a new member, take their fat caliper and test their push-ups and sell them a package of training, right? And okay, and I got a client, I got another client, and basically three months of that, I just said, all right, I'm done here. And I took one of the clients from the gym and my client, the one I said, listen, let's do this in your apartment. I'll charge you less than you're paying now. And I'll make more than I'm making now with just one client. <laughs> so, and then I built a business on word of mouth and pretty soon, you know, pretty soon, a couple years, I could stack my day with nine appointments of in homes all throughout Manhattan. And I could juggle the schedule with auditions. And I had a clientele that was fluid with the early morning and late evening booked, right? So from 5 a.m. till about 11.30, noon, 12.30-ish, that time was essentially booked. That was work time, unless an audition couldn't be arranged to you know, fit there. And so that was my life. And I kept, and I kept like meticulous notebook of my appointment. So I would write down, like, 
and I kept track of my business on an eight and a half, 11 piece of paper. I would just draw a grid. That's 10 sessions. You're paying me, you know, in blocks of 10 so that should there be a cancellation, I can charge you for that without having to ask you, et cetera. And that's what I was doing. And I almost, I almost hit it as an actor where I would have been gainfully employed as an actor in a movie that you have seen. And I, you know, it came close on a couple of these projects, right? Never landed it, obviously, and I'm glad I didn't. But I was feeling pretty beat up pursuing acting at the age of 29. And I was starting to say, like, okay, is this going to be, am I going to be waiting for the phone to ring the rest of my life here? Like, at what point am I going to be able to build my financial situation so that I can support a family? that's one of my life objectives was to have children and support them so that that was where i was at the time that i thought of the idea for the bosu ball I was 29 years old i had just spent a year in chronic pain where every single day my back was killing me and it was one of those situations where i was completely ignorant of the causal factors. The principal causal factor was my feet were painstakingly weak from so much rollerblading that my feet couldn't support my body and I injured myself and the compensatory tension would not let go because my spine was saying, look, you're not doing the job. I'm gonna locally protect this thing no matter what. And I abused myself in terms of, I took painkillers. I was taking Aleve, Naproxen, and I would buy the tall bottle. And I was taking them like, you know, you're supposed to take one every 12 hours, no more than two weeks. And, you know, some days it was you know, a routine day. I might take four of those, right? And I was drinking a lot of alcohol. Alcohol was like a normalized state. I could have four to six drinks and not be intoxicated. I was perfectly functional with four to six drinks in me because it was just normalized. I smoked a cigar every day for years. I was an actor and I wasn't a personal trainer and I was a snob in the sense that I did not respect personal training because you couldn't make a lot of money at it really and generally speaking. And my peer group who I went to college with, none of them became trainers. They all became, you know, bankers and lawyers and whatever, doctors and, you know, professions that I considered much more worthy of, you know, myself right and I and in that sense I was all wrong but well I was right in a sense but I'm wrong in the nobility of being a physical educator because I think there's nothing more noble than being a physical educator and anyway that but the background was was one of pursuit of my dream of being an actor and I studied acting. I read so many scripts and so many plays and I was constantly in scene study all the time. I used to train acting at, at Win Handman. Win Handman. I mean just think of that name in the that relationship. Fancy. It he was great. Win Handman. He was he had his studio in Carnegie Hall and it was a scene study. And he he taught me how to read a script, find an arc of a character and play it. And I became a very good actor at, you know, I was good at it um, through a lot of painstaking practice. Can I, but, can I stop you there, yeah, uh, David? Yeah, Cause I'd like to dig into that. Um, it, it reminds me of like the, the Bill Murray who has a cult following and 
how he's this figure who, you know, they say he lives his life like it's one big improv. And he kind of got that from the start of his, his training and acting. And I kind of see a similarity in, in how you approach life. Can you talk about how acting has kind of informed the way you yeah. approach your relationship to yourself and others? Yeah, that's a great, yeah. So I, I have, first, let me back up. I'm the first born of four and I have amazing parents who are very smart, very talented and very loving. But my father, extreme narcissism and, you know, the belief that he wasn't going to live vicariously through me. He was charged with providing everything for this savior of the earth type, you know, pressure to be great. It's just implicit. I feared my father. I didn't fear him physically. I just feared him because his approval and, and like, you know, I came into this world and I think a human being, you come into this world and you have needs and wants. And when they are met, well, then you're just going to need and want more. And when they're not met, well, then it's a strategy to figure out how to get what you need slash want or deal with the fact that you're not going to get what you need slash want. And so I think my first 18 months experience in this world, the universe was truly mine. Like I had an amazing, loving mother, amazing, loving father, but like I was just led to believe that I was truly great. And so now you start chipping away, chipping away at that perception as reality presents itself. And you realize that you're not the center of the universe, you're the center of your own universe. And I remember when I was six years old, I lost a foot race to these two kids. And, and it was just like, it didn't compute. Like, it was just like, wait a minute, there's kids my age, they're faster than me. Wait, what? And I was like, I couldn't, like, what? The? And then you get to school and kindergarten and stuff and first grade and you the kids are mean and, you know, it goes around. We would always ostracize someone, right? You know, nobody in my little grammar school got away scot-free without being the subject of that's the one that we all hate. <laughs> like that, everybody held that baton for a time and it sucked, boy. And I remember being just, so consumed with the social fabric and and my attraction to women was like that it, that was subject and material to so much of my upbringing thinking about girls and and then football football was something that i just had so much and by the time i got to my entry point to acting i was now a senior in college doing theater 101, my first time ever in an acting class. And the first exercise was just simply stand up on the stage in front of the class and do nothing. And I couldn't do it because I, I didn't know what to do with my hands, to just stand there with my hands down by my side and do nothing. The social wall, that fourth wall, breaking it as an actor and looking out at the audience and not having anything to do it made me so uncomfortable that I couldn't do it. I couldn't do nothing. I, I moved it. And the professor, he took a real liking to me and gave me, you know, pushed me for that reason, I think. And he directed me in this hour and, a, hour and 15 minute monologue, this play, it was called Chucky's Hunch. 
And I was, I had to do method acting to overcome my social anxiety. When I was a senior in high school, I was captain of the football team. I dated pretty girls. Like, you know, I was, you know, life of the party, all these kind of things. But I was sweating in my armpits so profusely because the pressure cooker to be alpha and to be great was all it could take. And in those days, like, you know, my mom did my laundry and I well, my jeans have to be washed and dried so they fit right. So my legs look right because my legs aren't as big as I want them to be. So, you know, I roll up the sleeve on my shirt and like, I was so consumed with the way that I appeared that I was very uncomfortable as a person. And the acting, what it did was it just brought that front and center and it allowed me to say, get underneath it so that I could take, so that I could be more myself and less inhibited and, and, and boxed in from what other people think of me and begin to sort of relish my own uniqueness and say, all right, you know, I'm, I don't want to be like everybody else. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be vulnerable and allow, allow my vulnerability because the early trick as an actor, like what you'll see in, as a young actor, like someone who's just starting out is they're going to hit a certain point in their process where they cry every time. Like they're gonna cry in every scene and all of a sudden it's like for when you're crying and acting for the first time in an acting class or performance and it's real, like you have real emotions, it gives you something to ride. All of a sudden you're no longer self-conscious and, and it's the first time you're crying. And so everybody's like, oh, there's all this empathy showered upon you. And so it's a, it's a useful to play the card all the time where well, you're really not a good actor because I don't want to see you cry anymore. Right. But as you're going through the process to, to have the vulnerability to allow yourself to cry in front of a group of people, that's the big hurdle that you're really tackling. And so for me, I did a play, a scene study, and then I did a play, Danny in the Deep Blue Sea with John Patrick Shanley. And the character is 29 years old. His name's Danny. And this guy has the deep anger in him. I'm about to bubble up. I can feel the cry. Um, he has a deep anger within him that is unresolved. And he, he meets this girl, Roberta, at a bar. And, you know, he's telling her stories about how, you know, he thinks he killed the guy last night because the guy didn't have a $20. It was a party and he stomped on his fucking chest and broke his ribs. And I could identify with, with that character, the deep blue sea. And, and I'm getting even a little emotional right now and I'm quite seasoned at it um, because it's bringing me back to that time when, you know, 29, I had a messianic type of complex where, you know, 33, when you find out, like, okay, well, you're not Jesus Christ. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> that can be tough for those of us. David, I know, I know 27, of course, from numerology is, a, is one of those important milestone years for, for people. And you were, you were 29 at the time. And I think we can relate to DJ and myself to that age point as well as being a sort of a, a formative period in, in our lives as well. And, and looking back, like in the benefit of hindsight, can you 
can you sort of feel relive that pressure cooker situation and and did you sort of know that it was something was coming to a to a point at that at that time or, or was that were you mm. sort of just continuing on with 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 your with your acting and with your physical coaching and training and your medication of of, of this pain or, or was there an underlying sense that shit something something is going to come to a point now yeah i think it's it's sort of there there's cycles and i i like the vortex math because you can sort of exponentially grow but grow but you can keep a similar framework so it's one two four eight seven five one two four eight seven five so you're doubling and reducing the the summation of what you're doubled to a single integer and so if you play that game in the gamatria and the, and the numerology the number nine in the tesla 369 the number nine resolves all things and so and i go deep into that but back at that time the number 27, that's when, you know, Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, uh, Jim Morrison, like that's a, it's a, it's a big, big, big number. For me in that stage of 27 was when I hit my stride of being that guy who was, who could, who I had enough confidence to be exuding a fuck you energy as an actor. Like, I don't give a fuck. And that makes you sexier. So I began being more reckless when I was 27, whereas up to that point, I was always much more conservative. And, oh, well, you know, and to give you an example, it would be an audition. It would say like, okay, you know, it's a young, bride, a young groom and bride. So you show up to the audition and people are dressed, you know, they're wearing like a jacket with a tie. And I would show up with like leather pants and a white T-shirt with that, you know, James Dean, Marlon Brando, like, okay, fuck you. And then I started getting jobs and hired because you're bringing something that people want to see. It's not just this ordinary canned, you know, central casting type thing. And that's when I started to experience like a nightlife. I never did drugs, but, you know, I would, I was, I was burning the candle at both ends. I was living like a rock star. At, at that age of 27 that's when I hit it and I was having so much fun and 28 and then 29 that's when I got hit with pain the back pain and that's when I really sort of was looking at my life and just 30 being you know a nice easy number that's even where are you on the timeline to your family and your career at 30 and it's just you know there's anxiety if you're not, if you don't feel like you're as far along as you want to be and you have uncertainty about how you're going to, you know, create the financial nest egg. So that's where I was at that 29 was I was in pain and just gritting and working through it, taking pain medicines and poisoning myself and ignoring all signs and symptoms until I had no choice where my body was so toxic and, and my belly button was oozing this sludge and I had thousands of pimples all over my chest and back. And like, it was, it was just, it was disgusting as this sort of candidiasis and poisoning and toxicity was, was in me. And I was just resilient enough to, you know, carry the burden until it hit a breaking point. And I had to then seek remedy and that's when I invented the idea of the BOSU ball. And that changed everything because that's when I, I gave up acting. And I said, okay, 
And it, if I were 27 and I had thought of the BOSU ball, I would not have given up acting. I would have said, fuck it, I'm a rock star. I'm going to be an actor, right? I'm not going to go into that route. So the defeat or feeling beat up to that point gave me the departure out of that path. And I'm grateful that I did get out of that path. But, and the BOSU ball was just, it was literally like, I recognized the utility of what I had the instant I conceived of it. And I got very, now I can secure my finances so that I can fund a life that's, you know, exciting and, and productive and all these things because I'll work so hard to get this thing off the ground. And I just knew that it, it had utility. The, the, the underlying fundamentals were there, that if you provide something that is useful, well, odds are people are going to use it. And then, you know, the idea, if you could patent it and be the first to market, well, then you can sort of be the Kleenex. You create something that didn't exist. And okay, and that's, you know, and you get rewarded for it. And so I, uh, David. I would say that, yeah. I'd like to unpack this story because I think a lot of people might think you, you came up with the BOSU ball and then you were successful, but that was a labor of love and you, it was hard. There's a lot of failures and maybe points where you didn't think it was going to get off the ground, right? You were hitting the road. You said you had a, a friend's dad laugh at you when you first uh, oh, yeah, yeah. showed it to him. <laughs> I mean, could you go over yeah. the struggle of actually getting the BOSU yeah. ball out there? Yeah. Well, I think some, some of it, I, it was, what I'll say is that, you know, it's ready, aim, fire. And what I would say is really it's aim, ready, fire would be <laughs> the sequence. But I was fire, you know, ready, aim in that. Because I just knew what I had was a great concept. And it was around that dot-com bubble where people were quitting their jobs and becoming day traders because the stock market was growing up, right? So everybody, money was like, you'd fly across the country and they'd bring you two meals because, you know, the, the, the flight attendant liked you or something. It, it was a lot of, you know, this excitement about getting rich quick was in the air in that 99, 2000, and we had survived, you know, Y2K. <laughs> and so it was really like this exciting time but yes, it was a struggle, and I died a thousand deaths, DJ, in terms of like, oh no, this is jeopardizing the whole dream. If this thing, you know, there's so many times as an entrepreneur where if it had gone the other way, maybe you would have, maybe the fire would have gone out, right? So, and, and I, 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 I basically just had good instincts, I think, and I knew what I had, and I secured the intellectual property but I've still been in lawsuits involving millions of dollars defending it, right? And those are scary at you know, times when somebody steals from me and you gotta defend it. You don't defend it, well, then they take it. Why'd you get the patent in the first place, right? Those type of things. Um, the, the circuit of going across the country and more than half the weekends out of the year, you know, 25 times a year, you're in some city, you know, putting on a show at a trade show. And I, I was doing, you know, handmade units in the beginning, just beating the drum saying, hey, this is coming. So I was doing the marketing before I could even sell it. And I sold it to the U.S. ski team first, and then I sold it to the Yankees and the Lakers and the Devils. 
and then uh, the Ravens and Rams. And my logic was those were the championship teams. And, you know, I literally went into the old Yankee Stadium with prototypes that were handmade. And the strength coach at the time was Jeff Mangold. And I, you know, said, listen, here's these things. You can do these things with it. I'm sure you can find a lot of other things to do with it. And if you want them, I have to sell them to you. I can't give them to you. I have to sell them because they, they have to be worth something to you, right? So I, made, I secured high-level sales that I could use a testimonial. And this was, this was before you had this influx of products. So now there's, many, there's so much, it's a much busier space now, new products. But back then it wasn't as busy. And I hit the timing just right with the BOSU ball because the, the stability ball was, was like everywhere. And you show up to these conferences and they would have a room with 300, 400, 500 stability balls blown up with like people all exercising on them. And, and I was like, you know, mine will cost more, but arguably there's going to be greater utility with it. And so we would have, like, I remember one year we shipped into the ideal world fitness show. We shipped, we shipped in 750 BOSU balls that I inflated with, you know, a small number of my group. And we sold all 750 at the show. And this was, the, nobody did that. Like most of the only people who were making money at the trade shows back then at the show making money were the apparel people, the, 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 the nomadic tribes of apparel people who would set up a 10 by 10 with, you know, nice fitness gear that they had made and they had their own little customer niche. And then some of, you know, some of the, maybe, you know, some of the nutrition stuff, and there was just a tiny bit of that, but everybody else there was paying to be there as a marketing expense. Whereas my project, I was paying there to be as a marketing expense. We were selling enough at the shows to pay for the marketing expense. So it, I was very fortunate that I had a great idea, um, but there's, there's times, and I died a thousand deaths. Like, you know, I remember the first time I saw, there was a knockoff on TV, wake up one day and it's, ha, ah, check out the body dome. And it's this knockoff BOSU ball that they're advertising on TV. And, you know, I had to go, you know, do a, a, a massive lawsuit, you know, depositions and just, you know, it's just awful, awful stuff. Um, and I, I think I was willing to pay any price in terms of, like, I would stay up all night. Uh, one time at a tra one, one trade show in Washington, D.C., the guy who did stability balls didn't, one of the guys didn't like me because it's competitive, you know, and the mine was a half a ball and he was selling a whole ball and he had a compressor from the show where he inflated all his stability balls. And then before I got my turn to use it, he returned it. So I had 350 BOSU balls, me and just one other guy, we blew up 350 BOSU balls with little hand pumps like the little hand pump and actually one of them was a little foot pump this is not even as good as the hand pump and it was 350 bosu balls pumping them up by hand but you know before tomorrow at the session and i can't tell you how many hours that took and how tired i was but it was going to get done and you know had to do it 
So that's the kind of price that I was willing to pay. And I think in the competitive landscape, Mark Cuban talks about, you know, you have to be the hardest worker. You have to, hard work is really the key to it. And what I've done, I would say is like, I've succeeded in that realm so that I could go apply and do the quote unquote hard work of discovery. Because discovery is this nebulous thing. It's not a linear track where you can keep track of your hours and your output. This is, you have to, my process is, I, is, is you reduce things down to philosophy and principles, and then you apply them in a scientific method, testing them using your subjective feeling and objective measurement of the result to discover like, okay, we wanna, we wanna move our heads side to side when we run, right? We wanna pulse our arms double down when we run, right? We, we, we wanna do these things and it's, it requires, at least me, thousands and thousands of hours engaged in just the study of movement. And so it's, and I use Tai Chi, the, the supreme ultimate, Tai Chi and the, and the Taoist thinking to, to sort of uh, reconcile the Western quantum mechanics, you know, this idea of uncertainty principle, we don't know if it's here or there, you know, the most sophisticated advanced mathematics gets us to that. And then you have the yin and the yang and the Taoist where it's like, okay, that's, it's saying the same thing. And then look at the creature that's trying to figure it out. You're looking at it through two different brains that are synchronized together. So how the hell do you even know where the hell the thing is? You don't, you're triangulating to find it. And, and then to have the tangible capacity to make a discovery and then pull it through to lead to some new instruction or new invention or oftentimes combination of both that's very very difficult but it's not difficult for me because i love i love the activity and so for me it's like a balancing act you know like i get to play all day which is a blessing and it can be a curse but so i've set up so that from a day-to-day -day standpoint all you know the, the the i licensed the bosu ball in the beginning because i knew like i went to williams and i could have i could have decided at that beginning i'm gonna make a lot of money and i would be far wealthier or far richer not wealthier than i am now had i not just poured everything back in and just said license it so that i can invest myself and i think Coming out to California, and this is where I actually want to take this because this is, I'm trying to figure this out. I came, I was growing, I grew up on the East Coast where you get up early and you work hard in New Jersey and it's in me. And I'll, you know, if we bite into it, we're not going to let go, right? You got to kill me, you're going to beat me, is the attitude of, of someone for, you know, where I come from. That's, and I take great pride in that. I need that. Otherwise, I can't be confident if I don't have that type of commitment to being strong and, and, and you know, having something, you know, that you just, you'll, you'll die for. Um, and I was, alcohol was my pressure relief. So from the age of 13 
on, I was drunk every single week without fail, except for those times where I would take like a three month period, you know, where I'm not drinking, right? Okay. I'm not drinking. I did that several times, you know, as a teenager, but most of the time it was drinking and it was my outlet. And marijuana was for losers and burnouts and druggies. And that was hammered into me to the point where like I had tried to join as a, when I was 14 and then I didn't touch the stuff. And, you know, I, and I, you know, I'd be like, you know, throw you out of the party. If you try to spark up a joint, we're drinking Budweiser's, you know, whiskey here, you know, we're good kids, <laughs> not burnouts and druggies. So that was, and that was just, again, it was the pocket of influence surrounding me when I was that age. And then when I moved to New York city, I would get like, I had a friend who, you know, had some friends who did pot and I got very high quality weed, but a $40 vial would last me, you know, two years because I wasn't a pot smoker and occasionally I'd take some little crumble off it, you know, one little hit and be confused and disoriented and sort of like, Argh. but when I moved to California, that's when my perspective changed. So it was 2002 when I moved to California and in California, I started to like, wait a minute, you're, you're successful and you drive a Lexus and like you smoke pot every day. Like it just didn't calibrate for me. And that's when I started to, you know, explore it. And for me, the, 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 the marijuana, and it may have been laced in some cases, I don't know, but I, marijuana was catalytic for me losing my mind and going down a rabbit hole where it, reality shifted so abruptly that I ceased being functional in the here and now in 2002. And it was 2002, I, I had a little hit of pot and, and, and my, the, my, the, the woman who became my wife and now ex-wife and mother of my children, she had gone out with her friends and I was watching and I took and instantly I was thrust into this like realm where I was identifying with the main character as being a fraud. Like he was in the phone booth and he's like, you know, the numbers now, you know, the numbers now. And then September 11th just came crashing down upon me. And the realization that the reality and the official narrative is just so far removed from what is physically possible. And the cognitive dissonance is so profound that I instantly, I was thrust into a psychiatric condition called ideas of reference. And keep in mind, this is now 30, I'm 32 years old in 2002, clock is ticking to 33 and that's Jesus, right? So if you have a messianic complex and you're here to save the world, well, clock is ticking, dude. Are you or are you not? Whoa. And that threw me, I couldn't fall asleep for like six days. And I experienced uh, otherworldly capacities, like in terms of my ability to speed read, um, my ability to, to, to know what was going to be said by the other person before they said it and then have confirmation. 
that that's okay. I'm ahead of it now. And I don't profess any of this stuff to be real. It's just, this was my experience of whatever the hell was happening. And I was not prepared for that level, that intensity of, of harnessing the, the, you know, the power of the brain, the, you know, forces and, you know, so I had a lot of reconciling to do. And what the pot also gave me was it gave me the connection to the serpent, to the Kundalini, to this feeling that like there is a power inside me that's going to slither its way up no matter what. And I'm going to, and like, and it was so seductive. This, like, it's literally, you know, it's the same serpent that said, Eve, here, bite this apple, right? I mean, it's just like, oh, it's so good, right? It, it, the, the coil and, and the ropes was this, was way where I could like, I could spin myself into martial capacity. And I got very good with my, with my study of the martial art and by being able to move my body with that spiraling intent and the, the marijuana for me fed that. And it fed the, this crazy sort of interpretation of the reality around me that I found out is not the reality. I don't know what the reality is. And so I tell myself little stories and, and use phonetics and, and, and tricks with language and tricks with numbers to make sense of things that now I've figured out how to do that where I can make sense of things in a tangible reality to share it with someone who doesn't need any of the backstories, just do this. How I got there is this crazy circuitous, like it goes back to when the eat and hurtals were harvesting the, you know, the more meek hominins and then the females, you know, who they, they, you know, given birth to this hybrid, you've been raped and now you sort of, you know, you love this creature that's a monster and from that hybridization comes the homo sapien, right? The, 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 the sticks and the stones, the ropes and the fire, the secret of the plants and the dogs of war. And those six factors all add up to what we've got now, which is this human drama that, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so the vibration and the vibrate shin and the, the, the conspear, the, the conspiracy, the with the spear, we're going to eat tonight. The spear eat, chew all. There was a window where it was the athlete shepherds that were sophisticated and sneaky and clever and strong and everything that were able to sort of create this, this new kind that could basically say, all right, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna walk the earth here and, you know, sort of be in control over the great creatures. And I think it's a, and I think at the heart of it is a mycelial connection. So I, I believe that the fungus is the fungi in the sky. And I believe that it's this suspended animation that can be encased in ice. It can fly around forever, however long necessary. And when it impregnates a rock, 
you heat it up, you have water, you've got, and now it's go to work to God's glory. Tell me stories. Because as an actor, first thing you do is you, 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 you view it from, okay, what would I do if, if I were that? If I were in the shoes of that character, who is this character? What are the circumstances surrounding them? What would I do? You, so you have your, and that's all you can do is apply your own referential question of, okay, well, what would I do if this were me in that circumstance? And that's your departure point. And so I look, if, if I were God and were like, you know, God, well, then I would want to create creators that could show me things because otherwise, what do I have? I don't have anything. So if I don't have anything, I have to have something to have something. So you know, I, I play these games in my own psyche to, um, to, 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 I don't know, to, to try to make sense of the fact that we have such madness surrounding us and what can we do about it? You know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's maddening. And so what I have to resort to for myself is I need a reference to God's honest truth. And that is the gravity, the grave, E.T., and the ground. And my own physical experience is something that I can, I can, I can take charge of that and feel strong and resolved and pain-free right now. And that gives me this freedom from fear because I don't have to fear. Then I can just postpone and say, I don't know if tomorrow's going to be better or worse, and I hope it's better. But if it's worse, I'm not going to worry about that right now. So, you know, David, this Eckhart Tolle, yeah. I, I hate to cut you off there, but I, I think there's a lot in that um, previous time where you you created the bosu ball got it licensed had success you're you're in the uh the big house with the ropes hanging down could you talk mm. about what how much and this is in ingesting thc right how much were you doing what did it look like when you're exploring the relationship to the gravity and experiencing mm. in your body and mm. then the psychosis how what was that like in real time for you um, the thing about marijuana is that you'll, you have a tolerance and the tolerance will, will continue to increase. And, and so to get the same effect, you'll probably need a little bit more, you know, as you keep on going. And I was in a circumstance where, um, I basically was doing as much as I could, um, which, I would wake up and like, I was just recently divorced um, and you know, very amicable, but, but it was like, okay, I just, you're too much for me. I can't live with you and I can understand it. So it's, you know, it is my fault. Um, but I was, I, so I went to this property in San Diego, rented this estate where it was an acre and a half of pure privacy looking out over the city. And I would just hole up there. And so, in the morning I'd wake up and it was $60 of hash oil in a pot of, you know, double black Pete's dark French roast, you know, 
5.36 in the morning, boom, hitting $60 of hash oil in the first pot of coffee. Then, you know, maybe more, you know, and so you're, you're at $120 by 8 a.m. or whatever, you know, in terms of what I was doing. Um, so this is hundreds was, of milligrams of THC edible. Is, as I, much I as I was, take, I was taking so much of the stuff that I was basically just in, on it all the time. And, and when you consume it and ingest it, it goes very deep. It goes very deep. Um, and then later, I, I, I moved on to concentrates where, you know, you, you, you're, you're vaporizing it on a, on a very hot metal thing that instantly turns this waxy stuff into a vapor. And I was buying a lot of it. And that, you can regulate that. And I think that there, you know, I think there's impurities involved in it. And I think, you know, with the amount that I was taking, I think I got all sorts of garbage in me too. But it was one of those things where it would just escalate, escalate, escalate. And I would just keep chasing it. And, um, and what are you doing physically during this? Physically, physically, I was, I, when I discovered the core fist and I discovered like I can intentionally balance my body through the architecture of my hands to use the flexion. Feldenkrais talks about flexion being the immaturity, the fear, right? And the extension being the maturity and the open. And so I could take the fear and the hatred and the anger and I could channel that through tension through my hands that would circuit it back in. So I would do standing meditations for hours, just locking. I would be up at Esalen Institute, just like you know, naked out on the tubs there, like with sea fists, you know, double wide and just packing my back and, and, and doing that for literally for hours. So, and, and what, what happens is you're, you don't get bored with it when you're stoned like that, because you're, you're, you're actively feeling it, right. And channeling it and, you know, and, and you're met with, um, you know, you, and now you have the capacity to marshal your structure to, to be extremely strong. And so, you know, and I, I trained my fists that, you know, through, I don't, I don't know about millions, but hundreds of thousands of repetitions of hitting wood, and, you know, just making my bones really strong. And then start walking in a circle for like three or four hours, taking eight steps, meticulously taking eight steps around a circle. And, and then tapping into... The, this sort of crazy narrative where there is a divine connection and I'm like connecting into ancestry and learning these like ancient secrets and, you know, sort of all these crazy connection stuff that it's very entertaining in your own mind. Um, and it led to a, a ton of discovery, but the problem with it is, especially when I, on my third cycle, I've had three psychic breaks where like three, each one unique and distinct in its own, but it, it sort of, it culminated in, in uh, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, where I had this, lo- in 2015, I was in, that's when I made the, the one tension diagram and the six lines of intent, which is one of the most profound things I've ever done is the one tension, six lines of intent. And I'm now that I'm revisiting it, I'm seeing just how incredibly useful that 
map is. And, 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 and Chris, you, I'm working with Chris on it and, and others where like, it's very exciting. So, I mean, from all this madness stems good things for others that they don't have to go through the same processes to, to enjoy the discoveries that are coming from it. But to, to feel the tensional balance and to be coming into it, like I, I was wearing a kilt um, in those years and I, and I, I was like a hundred, I got down to like 150 pounds cause I just, I was eating just hamburger meat and broccoli and steak and broccoli. That's all I was eating. And it was just as much concentrated THC as I could ingest. And what happened to me was it was a law. It was my third episode was this long sustained manic climb that didn't spike and burn out. It just kept on going and going and going. And it ultimately led to a, a catatonic depression where my sleep cycle was, was upset. And I think all of the, the, the residual bad things that may be associated with those concentrates had concentrated in me, I think, so that I was experiencing like, you know, nervous system, like, was off and I was miserable. And I remember being, I remember being catatonically depressed except for that, which I don't remember because that period of time I was so depressed. I don't remember a lot of this. And the ECT, I have a wonderful psychiatrist who helped save my life and working with them since the first episode. Um, but the, the ECT, the, the, the electroconvulsive therapy is a very humane one flew over to cuckoo's nest where they anesthetize you and then they decouple your, your, your reflexes from your body so that the shocks don't jump your body on the table. And you do like 20 sessions of this where they go and they knock you out and they zap your brain and it, it's like hitting reset on the computer. And, and that, whole, that whole period of, of time, the three months or so that I was doing it, is just a complete haze to me. I don't even remember it. Like, you know, and, and, and my kids, you know, like I, like it's, there's, it was very, um, very strange time. But when I remember completing the ECT coming out of that. And I remember sitting in my doctor's office and just feeling this sense that I, I had a whiteboard that was like so scribbled on that was now like, it was like I had Windex and pristinely cleaned off the whiteboard. So my mind, I still had the benefit of all the scribbling and all that knowledge and all that experience. But now the ECT was like, I got to whiteboard off all the mess. And just, I, and I remember sitting there and I literally drew two lines. I drew a vertical line and I drew a horizontal line. And I said, all right, that's it, right? I can, I can now organize my thinking and, and build something right with this. And so that, that clarity to not be compromised intellectually. I felt, I, st I still feel like I have my capacity, but, and now I don't do the THC the way I, for, for a long time, I didn't do any THC. And then I just do it a little bit of almost like a microdose. And then I've started doing the mycelium the microdose, which DJ, you first introduced me to. And, you know, you live and you learn and you sort of find your balance where right now 
I'm not interested in being inebriated. I'm interested in finding a balance where I feel good and I can be productive. And I find that the, the, the mycelium, the, the funk, you know, the stamets and, and the, you know, the psilocybin, I think that, you know, in the, in the, in just the, the right dosages, perhaps you're sort of getting that synesthetic benefit where certain regions of your brain are more open to connecting with other regions of your brain. And, and so you, you're able to make connections and see things with a healthy balance that I really appreciate right now. And so that's, that's sort of how I look at it now is, is I, 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 I think the, the pot can be a tool and it can burn you and, and for and I think it's different and this is a difficult subject because it's different for every person depending upon how you're genetically set up and then how you've been raised and all the background your thinking your emotional life for some people it can be good and some people it can be bad so I think what happens is we tend to want to pigeonhole everything because it makes life simple but there's so much nuance and shades of gray that when you look at any particular individual circumstance, there isn't just a clear black and white line between what's you know good, bad, right, wrong, etc. Mm. In terms of you know what you would recommend to someone else, for example. Uh, David, do you? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Tom. Do you just looking back? Do you, do you sort of have any theory about whether there was some sort of divine intervention at this stage when you were 32 that led you to this to this experience that really set off this this process of of going deep into this cosmological realm of of these prints and this of diving deep into the spiral and and at the same time of course it must have been pretty traumatic having a young family at the time being recently divorced from your wife having this business that's you're just kind of licensed and was getting off the ground. Like, do you, do you look back at that and seeing that as some sort of stage that was given to you to really be almost like a sort of a redemptive period of your life to, to, to process and to go through and to really face that deepest, darkest shadow and then face the choice of, do I want to come through this or not? Yes, I, I do. I, I, I definitely, I know there is a divine connection um, that I'm a conduit to a divine connection. And I, 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 um, how can I say what, um, let me tell you, I mean, it's, it, it's such a deep and profound thing. I, if you listen to Alan Watts, he's a good, person to listen to if you want to get you know a, a background on a lot of the esoterics right and this idea that the godhead can instantly inhabit any of us or anything and i so i i think i remember having 
I, I, I've created something that I call King Leash and Steve Cotter and I speak it fluently with ourselves and it, it basically allows me to take, you know, my name David, which means beloved, and then I translate it into B, love, D. And, you know, so, oh, okay, well, that's my instruction. And then there's the part of me that's like, hey, wait a minute here, you know, I am angry. So I'm still uncovering what it is that makes me tick. And I think, um, I think there's like the Godhead emerged through me. And when it looks out and says, do you like what you see? There's a big part of it says yes. And a big part of it says no. You know, there's still time on the clock. I need to do better. And that fuels me in this mission, Every Step Stronger for Everyone, where it's about sharing physical education because that's the tangible reality that you can share because you can't share. They, other people have to experience their own experience. But the physical is the no bullshit realm. And I think that that's the challenge is the no bullshit realm. And because... What does anything matter in the grand scheme, right? E equals M, so is M E? Well, yes, okay, then what's it matter? And so, so there's a futility in it, except there's not. Like, it does matter, right? And so I think as I sort of relate to this, okay, anytime God can inhabit me and look through it and see it through me, I remember feeling that and feeling so grateful. And I remember wishing times, wishing like having a sincere feeling of like, I wonder if there's, you know, seven and a half billion of these Godheads and, and you know, in different versions. And does every soul get to feel this sense of connection? I, gee, I hope so, right? Because so much of it's suffering. And I, I think um, what I'm interested right now in creature comfort and arriving at something where the, the feeling a sense of purpose and a sense of um, belonging is, is really what it's most about. And, and that is the true creature comfort. So, having enough of the, of the necessities, the food, the shelter, the, the, the clothing, I, I don't know. It's, and I, I'm sort of failing, failing to articulate well right now, but I, I think God can inhabit whatever he wants or, you know, anytime. And I think I'm here to put on a good show for God's glory. And I think if I were God, that's what I would want my creations to do. And I think the good guys, you know, I pray that the good guys will win. I think right now we're living in a time where we're, we're approaching this great awakening and it's either going to awaken under the control of people who shit the bed for God's glory. And it becomes this, you know, 
communist, like, you know, totalitarian, like terrible creativity dies. And it's just awful because so much and the, and the evil forces win or the good guys win. And human beings figure out how to navigate this realm for this time in, in a better way for the creatures that inhabit it now and to come because this is not permanent right we're just one form and how there's too much mystery there's too much mystery and i think that there's you know the the institutions and the beliefs and the stories that we've been told are just those they're stories it's his story and so Right now, if you really look at Darwin's theory of evolution and the clarity of mathematical you know, probability, the Precambrian explosion basically says there's not enough seconds and hours and minutes in your you know, billion year old universe to have that kind of random, random mutation and the natural selection. And how do you account for the fact that the protein is not viable unless it has 20 factors all, you know, so how did you incrementally get there? So I think intelligence and intelligent design are more than likely than just this is some, you know, randomness and like the smart people like a Sam Harris has that you know, sort of very stoic approach that there is no God, this is all just an experience, blah, blah, whatever, right? And I don't subscribe to that. I think that there is something more meaningful um, and more purposeful underlying all the factors. So, and, and I don't know if I'm, I'm not, what I'd like to do is I'd like to have another, you know, make this an ongoing conversation <laughs> yeah, yeah I, think I don't know that nature, I'm really nature has an intent right in a direction uh i i saw there was something about a bird who went extinct three times and it keeps coming back and they're saying that's like impossible the the chances right, right? well yes, there's some yes, sort of intelligent direction i think so there is some intelligent direction and i think you know we we as these you know monkeys with Ten, what we have that the dolphins and porpoises don't have is we have 10 fingers and we can do the details, right? And the devil is in the details. And in some ways, I feel like I'm a Jobian character in the sense that I have terrible skin. I have psoriasis all over my chest and back and it's really ugly and it bleeds and it itches and it's just, it's really nasty. Fortunately, it's not on my face. So you can't really see it if I have a shirt on, but I look at it as like, okay, perhaps the devil and God, you know, made a little wager and said, you know, devil said this, I won't, you know, this guy's going to fiddle about here and with the rope and with all this tinkering, the devil, you know, the idle, idle hands, the devil will play. And, but I'm, I'm God, you know, I'm for God, I'm for good. And so I, I will never, I, I'm an American. I, I just, just, you know, freedom and liberty and the ability to express oneself and just to be honest. If the king's not wearing clothes, I'm not going to say he is just to live, right? Shoot me now. It's just, there's certain things that are not worth living for and being enslaved and forced to lie 
is, is that's not good for God's glory, in my humble opinion. And I see a world where that's where it's going un, unless the forces for good can prevent it from going, you know, to that eventuality. And I, you know, and, and therefore I think, you know, I, I feel so betrayed by the mainstream media, by the politicians, by Hollywood, by, you know, all this stuff feels so betrayed right now. The conspiracies that I was exposed to during this lockdown, that rocked my world even more. Like, you know, September 11th is something that you wouldn't bring up at a nice dinner party because it's uncomfortable. But there's architects and engineers, and I don't believe that someone is is honest with themselves if they see the towers demolished and believe the narrative that they got hit by planes and fell down the way they did. I think what happens is that's so threatening that if you're going to go to that place and accept the fact that that's bullshit, the narrative there, well, then what other questions do you have to ask and answer? And does that undermine the very social fabric upon which you're hanging on? And would it all just break into anarchy so better to lie to yourself and say, oh, yeah, the 18 hijackers and the box cutters, yep, oh, yeah, hit it and, you know, the whole thing's powderized, but, yeah, it just fell down, yep, it's all gone. It's, it's so, it's disgusting. And now you come into these conspiracies where it's conceivable that there are demonic, satanic rituals that involve drinking the, the, the blood of children? And now you have these logical questions like this guy Podesta and his emails and all this pizza crap. It's like, and oh, nothing to see here. Oh, really? Oh, really? Because if that's what it is, and there's a spiritual war going on, and you know the trappings of nice things that we have is a consequence of an architecture that's some Luciferian fucking nightmare where we're going to, you know, Get our fucking jollies doing that shit? Wait a minute. I think that there may be a higher governing law in the universe that says, hey, you might be winning now, but that don't win forever. And I'm playing forever. I ain't playing for fucking right now. I'm playing actually both sides you guys, right? I'm I'm not I would not forsake I would not forsake the future doing something that is just I Given who I am, I like my heart, my heart can't, it, I have to have a line. And the stuff that I'm seeing and being exposed to is so outrageous that a regular person, you can't have the conversation because they, they can't go there, right? But now you lock us all down for all this long and you just keep lying to us and you just keep lying to us. It's at some point, it's okay. It, it, it cannot continue the way it is. And if it were to continue in that way, well, then if, then I don't need to be a party to it. If the good guys lose, well, then I die and okay, whatever. <laughs> it won't die anyway. Right. But I see, and, and you want to talk about just even like in our own fitness realm and the fitness community, the fitness industry, I mean, it's just absurdity, absurdity that, you know, and that's what I see again, the ropes, 
And the rope is very interesting. You look at William Randolph Hearst and you look at uh, his, his demonization of marijuana, right? The cannabis, it was racially motivated. It was, you know, the Mexicans and it was marijuana and it was a campaign so that he could keep growing and cutting trees to make paper to wash your brain with whatever the fuck he wanted to controlling the media. And that was the newspapers. Right. And that's and that's and that is the story of marijuana. If you read Jack Herrera's, you know, the king, the emperor's new clothes or emperor clothes, whatever the book's called, you'll hear the real story of marijuana. And and I'm and I'm not saying that, you know, kids should be smoking pot. I'm just saying what is what is so that hemp was demonized and we we write on wood pulp and paper. And we don't use hemp because, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, in a spiritual war, the consciousness, consciousness, and Jonas Salk even talks about the anatomy of consciousness. I think there's a collective conscience that literally, if it flipped, then anything could happen. If the consciousness agrees upon it and it's coherent, well, then it is. That's it. And it doesn't need any more explanation, explanation than that. It's just consciousness is consciousness and it's going to be what it's going to be if you agree. And right now we're approaching this time where the, the winter solstice, this December 21st is going to represent an astral alignment that comes about only every 6,000 years. And who knows what that means? I don't know what it means, but it sure is accelerating to this opening where, hmm, what if we could, what if we could sort of all reach a point where it's like we get to the point where we can acknowledge so that we can move forward? You acknowledge the sins of the past. I mean, if, if we are living a, Luc a Luciferian nightmare, the modern, you know, just our modern things and our modern way of life is the result of a Luciferian fucking nightmare or dream, wet dream, you know, some sex perverted fucking dream. If, you know, it's the sexual energy, it's the sexual energy, sex, six, six, the hex, the sex. That's what makes the whole world go around is the fact that, you know, men and women get together and make more. And now we may be entering a realm where you don't need men and women to make more. You make them in a test tube. Who knows what's next? And I, frankly, whatever. It's not, you know, but I'm just saying the basics of the birds and the bees, that's the powerful energy is the sexual energy. And I, and I, I have, for me personally, because my skin sucks and I'm so sort of like focused on what I do now, I don't have the same trappings of the sexual energy desires. Like when I was 27, you know, that, that's what I cared about was, you know, having sex. Now I've, I've played that. I've driven the fast car. It's fun. Great. Whatever. But it's so much more. So what I do is I channel my sexual energy to, to my work, you know, I think it's, it's, and I'm not chasing skirts. I think that's not, that's not my thing. Right. But I could, David, I could, yo, uh, 
Could I, could I go into this also? Because when I think of you, I think you're, you're an inventor. Like the creative energy you have is overwhelming. And you're always going deep into ideas. And I see this with a lot of like geniuses and inventors. You know, they flirt with madness. They go deep into the chaos and they bring out like new ideas and good stuff back. And you've talked about, and, and a lot of them have like manic episodes up and down. And recently, even just getting to know you, I've seen a change since I met you. And you are much more clear and focused now. Do you have any advice to, you know, entrepreneurs, inventors, you know, people of this creative nature like that out there? You already talked about the sexual transmutation into creativity but do you have any practice that grounds you and helps you move forward? The, the, what, what helps me move forward is the, is balanced training where I live my life by the mantra that every step is a rep. So I'm, I, I'm interested in effortless power, getting as much as I possibly can accomplished with as little input as possible. And so all of my input goes to feeding my, my natural capacity to, to comport myself with uh, ease. And, I, and, and it's sort of like I, I'm lucky in the sense that I'm constantly doing moving meditation. You know, I'm mindful about my movement because I, I, I can feel the consequence of like I move. <laughs> like if for me, moving is a lot of fun. And so that's my, that's my true north or my reference point, my home base is I can, I can arrange the tensional balance in my body where I'm cat-like and I'm movement, I'm fun. And I could, you know, I could just burst into a sprint. Like I, I can go pick up something heavy. Like I don't feel any restriction in my physical capacity. And for me, that is, I remember when I was depressed and, um, you know, not flirting with suicide, but sort of, you know, having the, 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 the demoralized thoughts of like, I don't care to be alive anymore. Wasn't actively planning on ending anything, but I, if a truck were coming, I wouldn't have jumped. I was so depressed. Like I would, okay, well, this is how it is. Right. Um, that, oof, that, that's, that's a place where I never want to be again. And I'm very grateful that, that I didn't, that I do have my physical capacity. Um, if I didn't have my physical capacity, I don't know that I could manage my emotions um, and, and navigate this world because I, I need congruency to, to feel fully whole and, and wholesome. So just by definition, I can't feel whole and wholesome in this world because the society around us is incongruent i mean joe biden is a joke and the fact that he's the candidate for president is is a terrible terrible disaster and and it's not like i'm some you know trump fan but you know he's a man for the moment a flawed man whose policies for the moment are the better option so this election is very important because if joe biden is elected that's a travesty to humanity it, it's an admission that it's okay to lie. It's okay to, to allow others to usurp 
yourself in this Luciferian nightmare will, will, will only continue to dim for, to God's glory. That's how I feel. The incongruencies, you know, brace your core neutral to run. That's a crime against humanity at a very profound level because you're injuring that's you're 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 preventing that person from reconciling the very next step that they take with some dogmatic bullshit that puts money in your pocket and prestige in your fucking you know pedigree because that's the conventional story right and it's it's just wrong and now i'm not looking to to to, to lash out with my anger the way that I was at some time ago. Um, and I'm not interested in playing the fool. I, and frankly, I don't care because at the end of the day, you know, whatever. The reality is the reality. But I would say that whoever you are out there, you have to have something that is within your control that allows you to bring yourself to the center, that allows you to find the calm within the storm, that you have control over the variables that you can control so that you can get, you know, bad about <laughs> by the, you know, by the external forces that you don't control and you can, you can be okay. You know, it's, it's really difficult to do. And, you know, and I'm in the privileged class. Like I'm not discriminated against. I mean, good God. I mean, it's it. It's really, really difficult. Uh, to continue on that thread, David, you you mentioned before about this um, triangulation with the two selves inside, and I think when I was with you once, you you put something on a a whiteboard about. Uh, the two people, right, and, and how the ropes relate to it. And I think it was about business or, or mm. marketing or something, but it was really profound. Could you elaborate on that concept? Yeah, the both sides utilize. So, you know, we have the right brain, we have the left brain. And just from mechanically speaking, the right side controls the left side, right? So this sort of cross lateralization, as it were, it's it's a it's a it, it's a cooperative arrangement where you, you you need two halves and then this is something where god's design is he he designs sort of one side and then replicates it to form the other and so there's this mirror resolution of of this you know opposite yet not equal sort of arrangement where by familiarizing each side with itself, you can better integrate the capacities of both sides. And so if we look at something like just the mechanics of throwing something, which is a sided activity, most people are gonna do that better on one side, there's value in understanding it from the non-dominant perspective, not so much in that you're gonna be doing it in the non-dominant perspective, but to shed light and insight on the dominant side of what, what are the active things of the non-dominant role 
that me, the dominant side, can now practice and participate in to shed light on, you know, from my perspective, this right side, what does the left side do? And just viewing it through that lens may shed insight that allows the right side to do a better job because now the left side is doing a better job having used the intelligence of the other side and the perspective of the other side. So this counterbalance between logic and reason and emotion is sort of the left side being the logical side and the right side being the creative gestalt sort of, you know, artistic side. From a, from a functional standpoint with the rope, for example, you can just make it about figure eights. And so those figure eights will, will resolve themselves in a way that you get so many equal and opposite turns at sharing the responsibility and reversing the role and share the responsibility, reverse the role, that you become a better cooperative organism. And mechanically speaking, it's very easy to, to measure it, to see it, to sort of balance it on these other polar opposite qualities of logic and you know emotion it's it's a way to get the most extreme on either side of the polarity so that you have the most bandwidth in the middle is and and then control and nuance and controlling where it is that you want to be on that spectrum so it's it really is about stretching and going far into the polarities of the opposites to understand a broader bandwidth that gives you a bigger parenthetical central realm to inhabit and then be conscious, you know, more consciously control where and how you are in that, in that balance. So the, the balance between competition and cooperation is, is sort of, that's the both sides utilized training approach that I, that, 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 that philosophically, that's the root of what it is that I do. That's how I apply to everything. Does that make sense? Yeah, the, the two is, the one is two, right? It it's, has a Taoist. Uh, yes, and, and then it's four because you've got the upper and the lower, right? So you can sort of, the one, two, four, and you resolve it with the figure eights, and that gets you to seven, which is five, back to one. Like, you know, there's there's all sorts of, little you know little little ways that i just keep looping it you know you just keep looping it and you run it again and see if you can do it better run it again see if you can do it better is is a you know it's a it's a that that's the the strategy and that and again for in terms of in terms of um a software program that fits and matches the hardware. It's both sides utilized with the rope. Don't jump through it and learn the four fundamental patterns about your body. That gives you the best integration of right and left and up and down from a physical standpoint. And it is a, a lot of reps necessary to, to do it, but it's the it's i don't think there is a better modality on this planet earth than the simple length of cordage 
that that connects your two hands and then you synchronize through the competitive cooperative relationship of rolling those eights with the hands because like and especially with this alternating underhand sneak that's the granddaddy of all patterns and i i'm 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 approaching 40 hours of of being in that pattern since i made the realization that that is the pattern that that you know if you make a heavy investment in that pattern so that you climb the mountain to make that pattern truly like innate within you eight is within you right that form because it's a number nine it's the four to five boom that that drop and pop four to five drop and pop that's the nine that gets you over the six line now i know this is going off into crazy it gets you over the six line to either go five four downhill on the same side or four five on the other side and so and it'll all make sense you know with when the it only it, this the crazy thing is what i'm saying now will ultimately make sense once the math is on the mats and enough people do the pattern you'll feel that 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 boom it's it, it's 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 the six line the six line in the lines of intent is the it, that is the that's the di fundamental division of the outside the strong long part of the foot and the inside the long part of the foot and it allows you to get the best out of both understanding that particular division and it's 15 degrees off the center which from a movement standpoint we are a cylinder that's 360 degrees but we can envelop ourselves with a 390 degree approach that covers both it covers the center from both sides without being crossed over the center so you from a martial standpoint you're protecting the center with two folds and and i know it's getting all crazy people are listening you know i'm interested but i can't follow it like i get it i get it but um that's again the it will make sense it's going to make sense to enough people just in terms of learning these rope patterns that you it won't need to be spoken the action the balance like there, there's a certain confidence that you feel when you have this kind of balance that gives you much you, you you're you're able to go with the flow and adjust and be more resilient in your even in your thinking i believe yeah i because, think that's uh, oh. i think that's a it's very much an experiential practice and i think that's what drew dj and myself towards your work and also your your unique character was the fact that you you're you're the type of guy that refuses to be the the prisoner to anyone else's truth and and, and when you're deep in your own physicality you, you really experience that centering and that that those polarities and the tension that you can actually apply towards drawing those polarities that yin that yang that that anger and that joy you can you can draw them together but it has to be an experiential uh, process yourself and i think just looking at people who are who are getting deep into your work and some of the people that dj and i are working with they're, they're drawn to this sense that there's something deeper than the movement itself and once you get locked into that to that spiral into that coil and you're starting to roll those ropes then 
suddenly you tap into this deeper sense of what is what is the truth that I am looking for and, and why mm. have I been so dependent on the externalized truth? And, and, and I think we're seeing that in society today where, where people are just looking for some sort of initiation and they're, and they're, they're finding all these half truths and all these, these ideological sort of muddied waters out there professing truths of our age, but really it's, it's, it's within us. It's within us. And I think, having a physical practice, which I think you, you, you beautifully, you know, and eccentrically portray in your own manner is, is such a, is such a fundamental rite of initiation. It's a, it's a, it's a return of the spiritual. It's a return of the physical sense of, of glory. It's the, it's the, it's the return of the God space within, if you like. And I, and I, yeah. and I think, you know, even from a Taoist perspective, it's, it's the idea that, the best leaders, the best leaders, they're, they're people that know not that they exist because they turn to themselves and say, you know what, I've, I've achieved it myself. I've unlocked the serpent myself. And I think that's the beauty of your, your work, David, is that you're, you're prepared to, to struggle and to, to express and expose your struggle and, and the depths of your, your suffering in a way to, 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 to really shine light on the fact that it's the resurgence that, that comes forth through the power and through the passion and through, through purpose. And, and I think you're really someone that, that stands out as someone that's, that's almost turned your circle and been out on your journey and, and has come back to, to show everyone that there is a purpose. And, and now this is my role now is to, is to show people that here it is for you. Are you willing to, to, to take it on board and, and do the work yourself? And, and I've seen that, as DJ referred to before, I've, I've seen that change within you, that, that you've, you've managed somehow to turn that anger uh, back upon itself and turn it into something very deep, which is a, a deep sort of a space in your heart from the times that I've met you, David, that I've seen beyond that, that veneer of eccentricity and, 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 and acting and, and, and your beautiful narrative and your stories, that deep down there's some sort of reconciliation that's taking place maybe it's forever taking place but it's it's you've come to a sense of peace that you have discovered your truth from your path and 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 that is a, a great example to to me and dj at least for for our work so thank you for for everything you're well, done. when you put it that way it really resonates um with wow that was so articulately put and i think I, you go back to enlightenment, right? Carry water, carry sticks. And I just, I just turn that into a literal, like, okay, your flesh and blood is, you know, that's the water and the sticks are the bones. And you're like, I would love God show me more. Like, you know, like transport me into this, you know, whatever's next, like, you know, whoa, whoa. However, I'm 50 years old. I got time left here in this realm. Okay. I got, I can carry the water and I can carry the sticks. And that's, I think, you know, I can do the very most basics better. And that helps me breathe. And breathing is really the next realm. Brian Mirabella is, 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 he really has shed light on, on this, you know, breath work. And so I've now begun really studying breath work. Uh, with this minimalist approach where you're learning to increase your tolerance for the carbon dioxide and breathe less 
not more. And it's, I mean, it's, it, it's bringing up all sorts of emotions for me and it's, um, it, it represents the next realm to go deeper and, and get, get, get new insight. But, but, but I, and if I were literally, if I were to, you know, have one thing to share one thing, like as a grounded thing, I think that alternating underhand sneak, I mean, I'm in it right now. So it has that myopic attention and focus on it, which I tend to do, you know, with whatever I'm into at the particular time. But as far as just an overarching fundamental motor engram, it, there's nothing more productive then that move mastered. You climb that mountain and you give yourself 40 hours of honest, I'm gonna learn it and fill it in. And the rest of life in terms of movement is literally downhill in terms of what you're able to do. You're able to shift your weight and go up to create a drop. And, and then go and just shift your weight without effort. You've elevated, you've elevated to the next one without effort, without effort, or, or you know, the effort was easy. It was enjoyable. It was just a boom, a boom, a boom. And there's something so wonderful in that, that I, I swear like that, if I could share that, like bottle it, but like you said, it's experiential. You have to do it for yourself. There's no way around it. And, you know, and, and now I think we're ripe for that message that, you know, well, how many should I do? You just do as many as you can <laughs> and do it, you know, and do it till you can do it easy. Like until, until you just, until it's just in you, right? It's just routine. And it, it, it sets up, it's so wonderful. And that's why it makes me smile right now because I think enough athletes will get the, the, the external reward of like, oh shit, I'm faster. Oh, I hit the ball farther or whatever, right? That it's going to incent them to do it. And that'll help. No, I'm interested much more in normal people than I am high level athletes in terms of making a contribution to the world. I mean, it, there's far more people who are not elite athletes who if they, if they engaged in a form of physical exercise that informed their body to, to move like with better balance, which is what this does, that's a revolution where it's like, yeah. And that feeds, I mean, that, feed, that feeds my fire. It just, it's like, we can have an awakening that is not this, you know, tangible, oh, I'm going to sit in a mountain and cave and meditate, you know, no, you can still, you can be active and, you know, be, you know, th this is a moving meditation that is as deep as the, the deepest kinds of Qigong that are very sophisticated, but it's an easy in and you don't need any, there's no spiritual construct that you need. It's just a physical action that is enough and that's what i love so you're not you don't have to it's, it's not dogmatic is what i'm saying i i'm good it, i if there's so much and i can get so tangential though i apologize to anybody listening if you know if there's something confusing um you know fortunately in this day and age where listening you can be doing other things while you're listening and that's such a i think the the, the smartest people are the ones who 
the spoke the spoken word has more reach now than it's ever had it has it has the reach of the written word now which is incredible because you can you can be busy with other things listening to information whereas if your eyes have to be engaged in it or your hands have to be engaged in it well then it's hard to do other things so you know i think you probably consume a lot of you know spoken content as well and you know i love when dj posts a you know a video of him doing some extraordinary feat and there's jordan peterson you know banging away in the background kind of stuff you know how is jordan peterson what what is the state of his affairs do you know he's out of the uh, hospital i think he's on the mend i think he's on the mend he's uh his his daughter's been posting a few updates that uh that he's on the mend and he's busily writing his uh follow-up to 12 rules so so i'm expecting to see a an update shortly actually from him and um hopefully yeah, an important time, I think, for, for his voice, perhaps, some would that's say, what to, I think. to return. That, that's what I think, is, you know, his voice is an important voice that right now would be a good time to hear more of what he has to say from his perspective. You know, talk about being punished for having, you know, for the blessings. You know, that poor man is suffering from, you know, a deep struggle, but he has brought a lot of, uh, you know, just when you, when I listen to him, he makes it okay. Like the hierarchy, right? The acceptance that there, there's a hierarchical order to all things where if you're going to evaluate something, well, then there has to be a sequential, you know, order, you know, someone is faster than you right? And you are faster than someone else, but let's just get over the fact, right? And just let's not try to deny that fact. And I think that it's um, great, great evil is to be found in trying to deny the hierarchical order. Those who deny it tend to be the ones who want to create a hierarchical order that they are the hierarchy of. <laughs> and that I think in fitness, that's like the evidence-based people, right? Which, which I love the tool of science, but we've talked about this on the Instagram comments. How many times do you hear, oh, oh, but why? Or show me the studies. And what I love about what you and Tom have been saying is it's experiential, like try it and find out. And the reason I love hanging around uh, the WEC lab and, you know, with Chris and you guys is you have a very high standard of, uh, I mean, you're open-minded, but it's, it's, let's test it. Faster's faster, stronger, stronger. If it works, it works. And I think that's missing so much today where people are looking through, like you said, we have all this content technology. Uh, tell me what to do. Is it right or wrong? Does the literature there? Um, instead of hey, trust your experience. Trust your body. Does it work? You know, look at that anecdotal leg of the scientific process and and do it, and then let that inform you. Let your experience inform you. So it, it's refreshing yeah. to see that when I come, you know, hang with you guys. 
Well, that yeah, and you're a, you're a welcome part in that. Um, and and I'd say, I that I've learned a lot, um, you know, in this whole process. And and I'm just a work in progress. Like I'm always going to be learning, and it's just a relentless pursuit of better. And it, you know, I the, the way the water will wear its way through the stone. I'm just going to keep a applying the question what if dot 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 you know just keep applying it and see okay well test it test it test it right and what I think will happen and thank god I've you know reached this realization is it is going to be just the the overwhelming evidence of experience will make that trepidation and fear to like, oh, should I do this? That's, they're gonna be people who are standing at the edge of the pool who are jumping in just because others have jumped in. And when they find out just how much more powerful and how strong and how much more fun they're gonna have with their bodies and their accomplishments, the ropes will be a rite of passage that, is just handed on to different human beings and, and it will become normalized that like right now it's normal to take the rope and jump through it with this, you know, very, you know, sort of, okay, boom, just to jump through it. That's normalized. And it's abnormal to not jump through it. And I think it's going to flip where it becomes more normal to, to, to roll it around you because you're going after the muscle memory, you're building the, the, the integrative skill of left and right and up and down. And when, that, when, when you have the burden to jump through it, there's a, it's a syncopation. So the, the, the down up is not unified. It's actually a more complex act that doesn't lend itself to the carryover to the, to the downbeat, creating the more powerful up right? The, the people get ahead of themselves and they're not integrated when they're as well as they can be. And I see the ropes as being something that everybody has access to it. So there's no excuse. And it's, it's something that you're going to see the benefits starting to accrue for those who have done the reps. And it's very easy to catch up because you just have to learn it. You know, a few months of it intensely studied and you're at a whole quantum leap in your own capacity in everything that you do, right? And then for those of us who aren't competing, isn't it nice to be just like, how strong are you? Well, yeah, can you pick that up? And it's not this big process to evaluate how strong you are, right? You know, Chris can just walk up and pick up a 500 pound bar now and, He's stronger than he's ever been in his life, and he's not training. He's, do, he, he's not doing sets and reps. Imagine if he were, like, on a program to specifically do something. Jeez, <laughs> you know what I mean? He just has that because it's real. And, and Chris, Chris has brought such a purity to, to, to the methodology because he – he, he just puts principle into practice, gets a good result and just keeps on going and just keeps on going. And it's like where we're at now and what's about to come up, come to be, I, I am so excited and so blessed. And 
just in time. I mean, I think I think we need this physical revolution if to harbor the minds that will be able to handle the difficult nuances ahead. And you know, we don't. I don't want to live in a world of robotic. Um, you know, I mean, it's just. I want to live in a world where we can trust each other, and that's a world that the trust has been breached. And right now, there's those who are trusting in an establishment that's corrupt. There's those that are trusting in a scientific process that's corrupt. And so it's not that science is bad, it's that it's been corrupted by and co-opted. And now you're, it's a changing of the guard and it's sort of like you know eroding, eroding, eroding so that you're gonna have a big shift where it's just everybody's gonna have that aha and it'll have been obvious from, you know, and then they'll forgive themselves by saying, oh yeah, that's obvious from the start. You just, I never denied that. Oh yeah, yeah. Like that'll end up happening and that's okay. <laughs> we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna be able to, we're gonna be able to educate human beings physically so that they're more integrated to navigate this experience. And, And I think, you know, the fact that we're going to take, you know, the highest level athletes are going to recognize the value in doing it. And that's, you know, the carrot at the end of the stick is sweeter than any other carrot. You know, at some point, the coordination becomes the king. You know, you can only get so much stronger, but you can integrate. You can keep getting more integrated. Well, I, Tom, if you have any more questions, I think we might have to save the rest for part two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think we're going to get a lot of feedback on this one, David, and maybe we can uh, we can collect uh, a few questions and uh, and and maybe have a go at round two if you're up for that. Yeah, that would be you know would be great is get we'll get a collection of questions that I could gestate on and really give an informed answer so that I can be you know share with clarity you know from this chaotic you know source. And I'd love to. I love speaking with you guys, and I believe in what you guys do. I view ourselves as allies in the good fight. So, you know, this this kind of a thing, I really enjoy it and respect, uh, you know, the, respect everybody for, you know, just bearing with me if you've listened this long. The good Uncle Weck, man of the people. <laughs> Well, it's so funny too, DJ, because that's that's a character that I put to rest because that's one where like I, I was being a fool and an asshole a lot of the time. But if I was just out and about, I was a nice guy, like just talking to people. It's just, and then I just realized like, I don't know. I mean, I'm willing to do whatever it takes, frankly, to, you know, for this mission. And I just want to be effective. So if, you know, if if Uncle Weck comes back, he's gonna be a nice, good, you know, good guy, not a jerk, not a Tiger King. <laughs> <laughs> being being nice is old school cool. Let's bring it back. Well, Uncle do, Weck I, is not the hero we deserve. <laughs> <laughs> no, not that one anyway. You know, you, gotta, you know uh, but yeah. I think what's going to happen is what this this coming fall when we start launching the math on the mats, and I'm going deep into the hands as well. 
what will emerge over the next six months is going to be really a, a whole new foundational approach. And, um, and, and I believe it'll serve people and it'll be very easy to assimilate. So you won't have to indulge in all the crazy to, to get it. And that's really what I'm excited about. We like a bit of crazy as, as well, eh, David. So don't stop with that. Don't stop with that. Yeah. Well, if you focus in on it with the microscope, there'll always be that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys, weckmethod.com, Instagram, the David Weck. Um, get an RMT rope, play around or any rope and uh, check out the content they have. All right, David, we're going to talk Thanks, again. Guys. Thank you so much for Thank being you. on. Thanks, Thank David. you so much.